handful of people asked me, well, what's that number? And the moment I told them, it was in recognition of the number of days that uh, Israelis and, and others were still held hostage in Gaza. Uh, people looked down at their shoes. It was a conversation stopper, not a conversation starter. Looked at their shoes, uh, noted that uh, the coffee was now ready, and, and quickly made an exit from me. And I'm, I was left wondering, how do I turn it from a conversation stopper into a conversation starter? Hello and happy Friday. This is Matt Sheeran with the OJC and welcome to episode three of the OJC podcast project. We've got two rabbis and a rabbinic intern with me today, and I'm going to ask them to say a quick hello. Hello, this is Rabbi Ami Hirsch. Hi there, everyone. It's Rabbi Paula Macdrill. And rabbinic intern, Will Geister. Welcome, Will. Welcome, Will. Thank you. Good First to have appearance, you. yeah, Happy. on the OJC Podcast Project. Happy to be here. Thank you. So it is Friday, January 19th, and Rabbi Hirsch just landed after four days in Israel at 6 o'clock this morning, and here he is. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, as the cliche goes. I'm going to jump right in and ask you to tell us what was, what were the last four days like, and go ahead and tell us how, if at all, it was different from the last trip you took uh, a few weeks prior. First of all, if you're like my wife, some of you may be saying, again? You were in Israel again? And uh, yes, we went back. I went back two months later or so was joined by two members of the OJC, Naomi Sepash, who was also on our first trip, and Bruce Barron, um, and about 28 other people from the Ramah Nayak community and friends of uh, OJC and Ramah in general. And the truth is, if I could be in Israel every day or every week or every other week, I think I would be there right now. Uh, it felt really important to go back and felt really impactful to be there again on the ground in so many ways, the experience was similar to when we went in November, and yet the country felt very different. Um, unlike when we were there in November, thankfully, there were many, many groups volunteering on the ground. We were not alone. And Israeli society has gotten used to Americans coming and helping and supporting, and they remained very grateful uh, to what we were doing. Another difference is that in many ways, Israeli society, work, and the office place have returned somewhat to normal as well, meaning that people are back to somewhat of a normal routine. They go to work, children are going to school, and that was very different from when we were there in November as well. And yet, with all of it, there remains a heaviness on the ground. Um, there are still thousands, tens of thousands of soldiers who are in the midst of their service in Gaza, and up north and in the West Bank and all around. There are still sounds, if you go just a little bit further down south as we did on one of our days, not all the way down, you still hear the sounds of booms of bombs in Gaza and helicopters. In I learned specific types of helicopters that you only see going in and out of Gaza when there are soldiers who need to be airlifted for medical reasons that you see regularly when you're down south still. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done. And it was good to be there to be able to be a little bit helpful for these four days. You used the word heaviness. Was there a sense of frustration 
on behalf of Israelis. I, I get a sense here that a lot of people are feeling frustrated. Uh, and I'm not saying they're frustrated with the Israeli government, uh, just a general frustration. Uh, it's been more than 100 days. It, it feels like, what do we do next? What do we do now? N a lot of people, a sense of powerlessness, uh, even hopelessness starts to set in. And I'm wondering if, if there's any palpability to those sentiments there. I think it is about the government. That's what we heard over and over again. Uh, the signage around the country is now about two topics. And you see Israel, for anyone who wants to talk about the PR issues that Israel has externally, and there are many, many reasons that Israel over decades has not been a good PR, uh, has not made a good PR case for themselves outside of the country. Internally, I think they're amazing at PR and marketing. They have signage for anything at every point. And at this point, there are two pieces of information that you see signage every for, everywhere for. The first, of course, has to do with the remaining hostages. And some of those signs are similar to what we saw when we were there in November. Some of them are replicating the sign that the three hostages who were unfortunately killed by IDF soldiers a few weeks ago, uh, there are signs like that that replicate that sign all over the country. And hostages very much remain on people's minds. But the other signs that we did not see the last time we were there that are plastered everywhere you go are calling for elections. The Israeli people, by and large, are beyond frustrated with their government. It's not even about an in-particular person, although some of it is directed certainly at our Prime Minister, Bibi Netanyahu. It is not only directed at some of the ministers, although there is frustration about some of the ministers. It is simply a community saying, by and large, we are frustrated with what we have right now and we need to do better. And the only way to do that is by having new elections. So the populace is speaking. Um, whether or not that re results in new elections at any time soon is still too early to tell, but there is pretty clear frustration with the government that is there now. I want to ask Rabbi Drill, what do we do with the frustration here at home a uh, hundred plus days in? And the frustration, I think it's less about the Israeli government, although there is some of that when you scroll social media, but there's lingering frustration with a lack of engagement and empathy from friends, both Jewish and non-Jewish, uh, a lack of, uh, there's a frustration that it's disappearing from the news cycle uh, to a degree. And so how do we deal with that? Yeah. How do we maintain our resolve, continue to live our lives and deal with the frustration? Yeah, Matt, it's on my mind a lot. And the frustration that leads to, as you said earlier, hopelessness, that's the biggest concern for me because what do people do when they feel hopeless? They turn away. They stop engaging with it. They can't fix it. It's not going to be fixed. It's been more than 100 days. I'm checking out of this. And it's exactly that that I don't want our community to do. I want us to stay engaged and passionate. I want us to continue feeling the urgency. And so we're going to continue talking about it. We're not going to stop talking about the hostages. Um, for me personally, I am beyond exasperated with the current government because under the surface of everything that's going on with the war that we're all focused on, hard things are still happening that are driving Israel further and further away from the goal of who she can really be. And it's all still happening, but you can't focus on everything all at once. 
So I would say what we do with it is continue talking about it and continue taking small actions, which I will talk about in a little bit. I just wanted to share that right before Rabbi Hirsch left, my sixth and seventh graders made cards for Rabbi Hirsch to take with. We practiced our Hebrew writing. They learned some really great phrases um, in Hebrew of support for Israeli soldiers. And you don't just hand people, hand children, you know, pieces of paper and markers and say, make cards. We had to engage in the conversation about why and what's still going on. And one of my sixth graders said, why do we always have to talk about war? And some of her peers started jumping on her. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's a fair question. And I turned the question into Jewish pride. The answer was all about Jewish pride. When our people are at risk and when they are being harmed, we're going to keep talking about it. That's how Jewish people continue. And it has occurred to me that my answer to this sixth grader is the answer to our whole community. It's simply what we do as Jews. We don't allow the frustration to overwhelm us. As, as uh, Ruth Messenger once said, we can't afford the luxury of feeling overwhelmed. It's not for us to feel overwhelmed. We need to take ongoing, consistent actions, even if they're very small. Even if you go to Michael's, I don't know, I hope it's to give a plug to Michael's, and buy blue ribbon and don't wait for OJC to get a resupply. Just put the pin on. Wear it every day. Take your piece of masking tape. Today's 105 days. Tomorrow, I'm going to wear my, my masking tape that will say 106 and go out in the world. And, uh, well, Matt, you can tell us what the benefit or not of wearing the masking tape is, but it, it will remind people. So I did wear the masking tape earlier this week. I was at an event. I'm not going to, I won't name the organization. Uh, but a, f a handful of people asked me, well, what's that number? And the moment I told them, it was in recognition of the number of days that uh, Israelis and, and others were still held hostage in Gaza. Uh, people looked down at their shoes. It was a conversation stopper, not a conversation starter. Looked at their shoes, uh, noted that uh, the coffee was now ready, and, and quickly made an exit for me. And I'm, I was left wondering... How do I turn it from a conversation stopper into a conversation starter? What's the, what's the right first set of words? I took the advice of Rachel Goldberg, whose son Hirsch has, is one of those hostages, an injured hostage. She knows for sure that he is missing his arm. And she's been wearing this masking tape, counting the days that he's been in Gaza together with more than 100 others, including, by the way, six American citizens. So there's that. And... For me, I guess my opening line would be, we're all human, and it's hard for me to keep my mind on what's really important happening in the world, and this is what's important to me, so I want people around me to ask me, why are you wearing the masking tape, so that I can say to them, I'm thinking every day about innocent civilians being held hostage without Red Cross intervention, without news of what's happening in Israel, I, w I don't want to forget for one day. And I would just add to that, agreeing with everything Rabbi Joel just said, if the response is it makes people uncomfortable and they change topics, I think that's equally as important, actually. 
let people feel just uncomfortable with what they're experiencing when they see it. Let people feel awkward and not know what to say so that maybe they might not want to engage with you, but they're certainly going to be thinking about that piece of tape at some point later in their day. And I think actually that might be just the point that Rachel was asking for when she asked everybody to join her in wearing tape marking the days the hostages are held. Well, I wanted to give you a chance to enter the conversation. Uh, I know you came today to observe and report, but if you had anything that you wanted to share, don't feel uncomfortable. If you'd rather pass, that's fine too. But what do you think about uh, responding to people who say, what's with the tape? What's that number? Well, I think you, um, right, you have a point. All of you have points. I agree with everything that's been said. But also, right, it's when people feel overwhelmed, they don't know what to do, or they don't want to say, they don't want to hurt other people's feelings, I'd like to think, if I judge people favorably. And the question is always like, well, how can I contribute? What's my little part in all of this? And, you know, you might not be able to vote Netanyahu out of office, right? That could, you know, as much as people might want to do that, right? But especially if you're not voting in Israel. But wearing a piece of tape is something that you can do. Wearing a piece of tape is something, and it's personal. It's not like these are people who you have no connection to at all, right? It's one thing if I want to support someone in some country where I don't have a connection to them, but we are all connected to these folks, and so that is something that a person can do um, that can also mean that, you know, I am thinking about you, my spirit is with you, and, and for the people who are there, that can also be something that can give them some light in their lives. So I think it's a nice, respectful, and uh, it's, it's a nice thing to do. Thank you for that. We all deal with whataboutism, and while I haven't had this experience yet in person, I know many of our listeners have had this experience at least online, where the response to it's been X number of days or don't forget what happened on October 7th is with increasing regularity becoming something along the lines of, well, what about all the dead Palestinian children? What about all those bombs that are being dropped? What about those innocent lives? And whataboutism is a very real dynamic, and the longer this conflict goes on, the louder those questions seem to echo in our collective ears. What do we say? What do we say now? I um, am greatly moved by teaching of a wonderful thought leader, Yehuda Kurtzer, and his podcasts. And he talks about Israel in an ongoing experience of sitting Shiva. And when I go pay a Shiva call, I don't say to the family, well, what about your neighbor who also just lost somebody? I'm there for them in that moment of their loss and their grief. This is my family. I have empathy and compassion for innocent lives being lost. I personally hold Hamas responsible for those deaths, not Israel, though the bombs being dropped are being dropped by Israel. I know it, but I hold Hamas. And I think when people conflate that and forget, I want to remind them why we're at war. But in terms of the loss of innocent lives, I can feel with my heart, but what about them? They're not my mishpocha, my family at this moment in time. And my tribalism is raised. You know I'm a very universal person, 
and I care about many issues in the world, but when my people are under attack, that's where my attention is going. I shared earlier this story, this awful story from a few weeks ago of these three uh, people who had been held hostage, um, two Jewish Israelis and one from the Bedouin community who after being held in captivity were about to be freed. They had escaped and unfortunately in crossfire and misunderstanding of things, um, Israeli soldiers killed them and three hostages who were about to be returned uh, unfortunately lost their lives at the very last moment. One of the stories that I heard this week was from the mother of one of those who had been in captivity, um, that during Shiva for her own son, she, who I believe worked as a social worker in some other related field, met with these three soldiers who were responsible or held responsible in some way for the killing of the hostages. And they came to the Shiva and they sat there awkwardly at first. And the mother, after losing her own son, after having her son be in captivity for many, many, many weeks, went over to the three soldiers, I was told, and said to them, I wanna make sure you're okay. I love you, and I don't hold you responsible for what just happened to my son. And you're going to be okay. You need to go on with your life. I think your question, Matt, resonates with me as I think about that story. Because as Rabbi Drill said, I think the majority of Israeli society, and certainly in American society, and outside of Israel, and for everyone sitting here, I believe, we have compassion. Of course, we have compassion for the loss of life on any side of what's going on. And while Israeli bombs and Israeli soldiers, I guess in certain ways could be seen as the people who have killed innocent civilians in Gaza, we need to be able to forgive them because they're doing a job and a mission that is holy work to make sure the safety of our country and Israel is protected. And if these 130 plus souls who are held hostage still, innocent victims, grandparents, children, men and women, Jews, Bedouins, foreign nationals still being held in captivity were returned. I believe that a lot of the innocent victims on the other side, the loss of life would be slowed or stopped completely. So when I think about who's responsible, I forgive Israel. I forgive the Israeli soldiers because I think their hand is being forced in an impossible situation right now. Did you get a sense when you were in Israel that we're at the end of the, the beginning or we're still in the beginning? That We live in this crazy news cycle and people are asking one another, at least in my circle, how much longer do you think? They remember, uh, again, my circle of friends, uh, American hostages in Iran, 444 days. Uh, back in 1979. Is there a sense that we're getting close? That there's, is there any end in sight? Any light at the end of the tunnel? I'll share two anecdotes that I think speak to it, Matt. Yesterday afternoon, it's hard to believe it was yesterday. Yes, Thursday afternoon, um, at 3.30 in the afternoon, our group changed our plans and went to Kikar Khatufim, the hostage square, um, where all these art installations and kind of public gathering uh, in honor of the hostages has been going on since this all started. We went at 3.30 because we heard that there was going to be a birthday party, a birthday party that Israeli society was invited to. And it was a birthday party for Kfir, 
Some of you may know the name Kfir, the youngest of hostages who was taken on October 7th, this beautiful nine-month-old red-haired baby boy who was taken with his brother, with his mother, and with their father into captivity at nine months old. And yesterday, Kfir turned one. And they shared in the midst of a birthday party. When I say a birthday party, they wanted to celebrate him. And there were singers, famous Israeli children's musicians who were there to sing. And there was a birthday cake at a high chair that was set up for him. And there were orange balloons representing his gingy, his red hair. And there were singers. And we released balloons in the sky to send messages of love and support for him. And one of the balloons that was written with a phrase said, Yom HaHuledet Atsuva Ba'ulam. The, the birthday party that is the saddest in the world, or the saddest birthday party in the world. But one speaker shared something that really stuck with me. Kfir has spent a quarter of his life in captivity. A quarter of a life in captivity spent who knows where, in tunnels or in buildings. So are we moving on? How can we be asked to move on? And how can Israeli society be asked to move on when 130 plus people are held in captivity? It's not that these are unknowns. Every family, every person we encountered either has a direct person they love in captivity or someone who they know who someone's loved one is in captivity. So there's no moving on in my opinion in many ways when people are in captivity still. And yet, when we release those balloons into the air from the square, they rose into the sky and the national bird of Israel, the crane, the construction <laughs> crane, was hovering over air just past the square in movement in the midst of construction. Literally, the balloons flew over it. And once they passed the crane, they flew over the Iriah, the government building of Israel where the war cabinet meets daily to figure out what to do in the midst of this war. So the balloons are moving, flying over air with the captives in mind, with fear in mind, while construction continues, while the government continues its work. So are we continuing somehow and moving on somehow? We have to, there's no choice. But it's pretty hard to do when you're thinking about Kfir still there and not with us. Can I... Um address the whataboutism a little bit. Sure, well. I wasn't planning to. This is totally, I don't know if you guys were planning on having, no, because I wasn't even supposed to be here. Um, I have a Palestinian friend who said something very comforting, actually. Not expected. You know, it came from a lot of hard conversations. Someone who I've known for 20-some years at this point. Um, and we're having this conversation about what's going on, obviously. So my Palestinian friend has relatives in Gaza, and of course I also have family in Israel, right? And and it, it does, it breaks my heart to see all of this fighting. And, and I share that with my friend. Um, you know, that's not what I'm about. And, you know, we talked about October 7. And I said, you know, that's not what... It's not like it's, it's coming from Judaism to say this is what you need to do and this is, you know, it's not a value that I hold. Um, and my friend said to me also, like, October 7 is not a Muslim value either. You know, it's also supposed to be a religion of peace. And I think people forget that, you know, that it's, 
take away the politics or take away, you know, the entrenched fear that people have about each other. But, you know, it's, I don't want innocent people, like, anything bad happening to them. It, it, it just, I see that and it makes me want to cry. It, it makes me want to, you know, have all of the emotions. And, you know, it's something that has actually, interestingly, has brought our friendship even closer <laughs> because mm -hmm. we both share the sentiment of how neither one of us wants this to happen. You know, like he doesn't want to see my family, you know, in Israel, anything bad happen to them. And, and I also don't want anything bad happening to him or his family. And so I think that joint humanity speaks a lot just to reiterate that, no, like our values don't actually call for these things. And so when he said to me, yeah, you know, there's, he said the folks who did October 7, they're not real Muslims. He actually said that to me. And, and to me, that actually felt a little bit comforting. Just be like, okay, you know, we can repudiate these horrible acts, not lose our dignity and still be people. And, and these acts don't represent an entire people on either side. I appreciate that. That's definitely a reminder we all need right now. Rabbi Drill, uh, we're coming close to time. I'm going to ask you to maybe close us out with a message of hope. Sure. You know, on October 7th, I think most people in the community remember that Sagi and Carmel and Jonathan were all in Israel. And they were there for my brother, my son-in-law, Sagi's brother's wedding. That wedding is rescheduled, and it's happening uh, at the end of January. John and Sarah and the babies and Sagi are all flying back to Israel for Omer and Tal's wedding. And it won't take place in the South. It can't in the place where they originally had chosen, but it's going to be joyful. And Omer and Tal went to Kibbutz Mithalsim to do their wedding photos with their photographer. They went back to Racheli's house where Omer grew up and took pictures all around in the outdoor room and the front door. And Omer was wearing his army uniform for his wedding pictures. So definitely things are different. And also there's going to be a celebration. And I wish I could go this time. The timing won't work for me. But what I think I would like to offer is when really terrible things are happening in the world, whether it's anti-Semitism here in America, in Europe, uh, whether it's the war, whether it's the ongoing sorrowful holding of the hostages, we put it beside us. We don't put it behind us. We don't even necessarily move through it. We carry it beside us, and we reach for those moments when we can rejoice. And that's where our hope is. I told you before we started recording, on Monday I did a baby naming. And um, we were on Zoom. I didn't know that there were Israelis coming to the baby naming via Zoom. And just because it's what I always seem to be doing since October 7th, I paused in the baby naming to talk about October 7th and how every new Jewish baby brought into the community is a tikkun, is a repair for the lives lost and for the difficult times for the Jewish people, we don't stop living, we don't stop bringing new babies into the world. And afterward, the, the mom of little Lexi Madeline uh, wrote me an email to say that her Israeli relatives were overwhelmed that we paid tribute to them in the midst of our joy, because that's what Jews do. That's why we smash the glass at a wedding. It's how we live our lives. I like to give Rabbi Joe the last word whenever I can, but I must say something in response. 
there have been there's been a need for many new rehabilitation centers opened in hospitals uh, in response to soldiers and civilians who have been injured over the last three months. And they've actually been branded with a specific name, um, with a logo even, if you will, um, for what they are. And the Hebrew words that were chosen to what to call rehabilitation centers, I learned, is chosrim l'chaim, which can be translated to coming back to life or returning to life. So literally, if you go into a hospital that has multiple wards of rehabilitation centers, you'll see chosrim l'chaim aleph, chosrim l'chaim bet, the first ward and the second ward of returning to life. And it struck me that that's really what Rabbi Joel was just talking about, that it's, it's not saying returned to life. It's not saying we will return to life. It's returning to life. It's coming back to life. And I think that's what we're seeing here in America and we're seeing in Israel as well. While the physical is coming back to life, though, while people's physical wounds for the most part are healing, thank God, while life continues and returns or is returning to some sense of normalcy with births of babies and wedding celebrations and construction and daily life continuing. The other message that resonated this week in Israel is that the soul of Israel is in need of a lot of repair and help as well. The soul of a country, the soul of individuals is trying to return to life, but it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take a lot of time. But the message is clear for all of us. Chosrim l'chaim. We need to be returning to life. Amen. 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 And I would like to say, last word. <laughs> Good one. Uh, on that note, we will bring uh, episode three of the OJC podcast project to a close. I would invite those of you listening, if you have an idea for a future OJC podcast in mind, just tap any one of us on the shoulder at, uh, at a future kiddish. We'd be happy to consider it and add it to the queue. And with that, I wish you all Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat shalom.